because if you start by calling them a monster predator, well, you think if there's a monster predator around and you see it, you're going to know lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. But that's not what they look like. They're the best teachers and the best coaches and the best people in the community. But they're actually sexually victimizing kids. It's such a dichotomy that you need to not look at sex offenders that way if you're actually going to unearth them. Welcome to The Lionhearted, a true crime podcast featuring stories of the brave badasses who spend their lives fighting child sexual abuse. Join me, your host and forensic interviewer, Andrea Harner, as we get up close and personal with these unforgettable stories. How many people do you know who host a massively popular true crime podcast called Real Crime Profile, have been writing and producing for the TV show Criminal Minds, for all 16 seasons and counting, formerly was an FBI profiler and an FBI agent investigating child sex crimes and child abduction cases. Well, I'm pretty sure there is only one that fits this description, and his name is Jim Clementi. This episode is the first of two episodes, and it takes you through Jim's childhood, his transition out of the FBI, and into Hollywood as a writer and producer. Jim Clementi then details the whole spectrum of child sex offenders by getting into their mind and motivations. And thanks to his decades of studying the inner workings of child sex offenders, we can better understand the nuances and complexities in order to prevent child sexual abuse. He's an excellent storyteller, and I have no doubt you will be wowed by this episode and eager to hear the next. Listeners, here's a trigger warning. This show will cover difficult topics, including child sexual abuse. Please take care when listening, and resources will be available in the show notes. Jim Clementi. Yes. <laughs> welcome to the Lionhearted Podcast. Thank you, Andrea. It's nice being here. Thank you for coming into the actual studio. It's lovely to have you here. You know that I have been a fan for so long. And I am a fan of you as well. Thank you so much. And I purposely had Stephen Mills your friend mm. and my friend thanks to you kick off the the entire podcast mm-hmm. season and i knew that i wanted to have you to end it okay okay because you knew that nobody would want to listen to anything yeah, else yeah we've <laughs> lost all listeners at that point anyway so <laughs> i figured okay uh, yeah. so that's good so, so we'll do the least amount of damage right right Great. jim how many people <laughs> listen to real crime profile which you are one of the three hosts of we get about a million three a month listeners. It's pretty amazing, actually. And I've been doing it for a little over seven years. We have over 430 episodes. I also have Best Case, Worst Case, where we started a little bit later and we're up to 350 episodes. And what's great is that we have listeners around the world. It's so impressive. I love Real Crime Profile. I probably have listened to every single episode. The fact is we're a little different than most other podcasts Mm. in the crime space in that we're actually professionals. Laura Richards worked for New Scotland Yard and I worked for the FBI. And we try to base it on behavior and we use psychology and behavioral analysis to actually look behind what people show you on the screen. And that is exactly what I appreciate and clearly millions of others do as well is the actual expertise 
and the experience in the field instead of all these other true crime podcasts that are out there. I'm like, you're just someone who just wants to throw your opinion out about a case. And I guess you're entitled to that, but you have no basis from which to speak in an informed way. Mm. And you all do such a great job. And just so our listeners know, if they don't already... Jim, you are truly the OG of the Lionhearted. What you're saying is, <laughs> is that I'm old. you're old? No, 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 no. I knew you took it that way. I could it's see okay. it in your eyes. No, it's okay. okay. I, I'm actually glad that I've gotten to be old because, yeah. you know, there's been a few bumps in the road and I might not have gotten here. You truly embody the Lionhearted nature. Mm. Every facet of your life is to protect kids. Okay, but, but I have to admit, yeah. though, I do play golf sometimes, and I don't know if that actually does. But maybe we could you know, do a fundraiser, a golf fundraiser. There we go. I love that. Jim, <laughs> I'm actually really encouraged to hear that you play golf because I was getting worried that you didn't have fun at all <laughs> in your life. You're so busy doing all the, the I work. I am a little busy, but, yeah. you know, I do try to have fun. And, okay, good. Um, last week, I drove up to Sequoia National Forest and <gasps> just walked among these giant trees that are 4,000 years yeah. old. It's just amazing. And it's really grounding. So yeah, I like being in nature. Mm. Uh, I, I actually like just driving. When I don't have to be somewhere, mm. uh, it's actually very relaxing for me. I like working, you know, building and tearing things down and yep. fixing them, restoring them. And I think that might be a theme. In order for us to do this interview today, I've already established that I'm a big fan, but I never had done a deep dive into everything you've said, mm, done, sorry. and I did it these last couple weeks, okay? And this is super cheesy. Are you ready? I looked at my husband and I said, Jonah, I almost can't believe Jim Clemente exists. <laughs> I literally said that. Uh, well, okay. But I mean, that shows my values and what I think is worth doing in the world. Right. And you happen to have done a lot of them. Most people don't agree with you, <laughs> but that's all right. I appreciate that well, there's at least th one yes, person that appreciates That's right. One that's data great. point. So then it was really funny because Jonah goes, are you sure everything about Jim Clemente is even true? And I said, <laughs> you know, I actually thought about that. It almost seems too good to be true, but it seems to check out. Let's dive into okay. it. Okay, let's get into talking about what you spend most of your time doing these days, which, as I understand, is writer-producer. Yeah, I have found a love in my life. I, mm. I really love writing. When I was a kid, I was dyslexic, and I thought people who could put all those words together in a book, they must be gods. In high school, my sister was two years ahead of me, mm. so... What I would do is after she read a book, I would take it and start reading it two years before I needed to so that when it got to the class, I actually could keep up. And I thought I was a stupid. I didn't realize that not everybody saw different parts of different words together. I just, mm. it, they would just mix up and overlap. And I would have to really work hard to figure out which letters go to which words. So can you imagine... Mm trying to read aloud in class, it was tough. Right. But when I was a junior in college, my younger brother, Tim, got diagnosed as dyslexic and he explained it to me and I was like, oh my God, that's what I have. And so we started doing these exercises. We did them for about a year and it completely went away. It was eye exercises, going through mazes and things like that. What it turns out is what we had was a, sort of a disconnect between our eyes and our brain and 
our two eyes weren't focusing on the same thing at the same time. And you just train your mm -hmm. eyes to do that. And it was gone. Now, I don't know if that cures everybody's, right. but it did cure mine. So much so that in my last year of college, I took a pre-law course and then went to law school and was reading 250 pages a night. So talk about overcoming. Yeah. First of all, you overcompensated when you were younger, it seemed. I don't yeah. know if it was overcompensating, just doing what I needed to do. So getting the opportunity to write mm -hmm. and it was just amazing. And I co-wrote my first screenplay, I think in 1994. And I was an FBI agent. And right. of course, the FBI told me, you can't write a screenplay. <laughs> and I said, well, matter of fact, there's this thing called the First Amendment. Mm. So going to law school helped me. I, <laughs> I wrote a legal brief to the FBI saying you can't prevent FBI agents from writing because we have the First Amendment. You can prevent us from disclosing secrets, but you can't prevent right. us from writing. Were they and like, we really wish we hadn't hired this guy? They probably were. <laughs> they pro that was probably the day one. But when I got the legal memo back, they said, mm. all right, you're right. We're changing the policy. So I was able to sell that. And then... I got so busy when I got into the behavioral analysis unit. Mm. So that's the profiling unit in the FBI that I had to put writing aside for a long time. Then I met Mandy Patinkin. It was funny because he came out to interview people because he was trying to consider whether he was going to do the show Criminal Minds or not. Mm. And uh, they apparently took him around to all these administrative people and stuff. And he asked the guy who was bringing him around isn't there anybody in the FBI with a personality? <laughs> so anyway, they called me up and they asked me to meet him and I met him and he comes up to me and he says, hi, I'm Mandy Patinkin. And I said, of course you're Mandy Patinkin. You think I'm stupid? <laughs> and he just laughed and we sat down and he said, tell me your worst case and your best case. Mm, rings a bell. <laughs> it does. And I said, look, my worst case is not for entertainment purposes, but I'll mm. tell you my best case. And I related the story of a little six-year-old boy that was abducted that I helped find. And he picked up the phone, called Mark Gordon, and said, I'll do the show, but you got to meet this guy, Jim, and I want to base my character on him. So that's how I got involved in Criminal Minds. I became the tech advisor, and then season two, I started as a freelance writer. I wrote my first episode, and then five years later, I retired from the Bureau and came on full-time on Criminal Minds and became a writer-producer. And we had 15 wonderful seasons mm -hmm. on the network. I think we were the seventh longest-running primetime drama mm. ever in history, which is pretty amazing. And then they canceled us right along with COVID. Mm. And then it became the number one streaming show in the world for 2021 and 2022. So they brought us back. We're now on Paramount Plus with Criminal Minds Evolution. It's a hybrid between a procedural and a serialized 10-episode mm. arc. We've done 10 episodes for season 16, and we're waiting after the, the writer's strike and the actor strike is over, we'll be able to keep going with season 17. It has been an amazing opportunity. Just love the opportunity to not only write, but to educate people while they're being entertained. And that's the coolest thing. And that is our motto at The Lionhearted as well, because I think we both agree that people learn, people get inspired by stories. Yeah, that's absolutely. What that's what connects all of us together, right? right? Yeah, and 
I'll tell you, the first scene I ever wrote for Criminal Minds was the scene where Dr. Reed, played by Matthew mm -hmm. Gubler, he walks into a green screen when he's talking about the statistics of child abduction homicides. And he says, of the kids who were abducted and murdered, 44% were killed in the first hour. That's a terribly tragic statistic. But he walks into a green screen and he's on a playground and there's 10 kids mm. swinging and climbing on bars and all that stuff. And half of them disappear in front of his eyes. And then he says 73% in the first three hours. Now three quarters of them are gone. And he said 99% in the first 24 hours. And there's one girl left swinging on a swing. And then the swing swings empty. She disappears. And it's just swinging back and forth. Made the hair stand up on the back of my neck, on my arms. I realized in one minute, I just got that information out to 18 million people. And by the time it goes through syndication, 160 million people around the world in one minute. I was like, yep. this is a force multiplier like you can't imagine. This is what I need to do. So that is why I decided on my first opportunity, I would retire and go into writing full time because this is just such an important platform, but it's a real responsibility too. You have the opportunity to teach people properly or you have the opportunity to mislead people. And that's what I think sometimes, unfortunately, and not not necessarily intentionally, mm -hmm. but a lot of what you see mm -hmm. is what mm -hmm. a writer saw on another show right, or read right. in a book or saw in a movie. And so the misinformation gets rehashed. It does. It's actually one of the reasons why I agreed to be the tech advisor on Criminal Minds, because Ed Bernero mm -hmm. was actually the showrunner mm -hmm. and he's a former Chicago cop. Mm -hmm. So we met eye to eye and I told him, look, I can help you as long as you don't hurt mm -hmm. what we're trying to do if you right. help us right by telling the world what yep. we actually do mm -hmm. not this trope about fbi comes in and steals cases from locals mm -hmm. no yeah. we work yeah. side by side with locals right. we make them the heroes and then we disappear in the night right. all we want to do is make sure we help save kids and save right. adults and save people from this kind you're of actually violence. doing the real work on the ground oh yeah so yeah <laughs> Yeah, so we want to know. We want people to know yeah. how that works, rather right. than mislead them into thinking that we do X, Y, or Z. So Ed was right. really incredibly helpful, and I would get calls all the time in the FBI. Is it true? I just watched Criminal Minds. Is it true that you'll help me in, in a small mm -hmm. town in Tennessee? Absolutely. It was great. That show, I think, is single-handedly responsible for creating a real drive to forensic psychology in mm -hmm. colleges, universities, and so much so that there's doctoral level programs in most big universities. There were none when I started. Mm. It's just like when LA Law, which is way before your time, but it was a, a show that popularized mm -hmm. a, a law firm and female attorneys. Right. Law school enrollment went up 20% for females during the course of that show. I mean, that's 20%. Wow. That's significant. It really changes things. And I think that's why there's a responsibility to be accurate and authentic in TV and in movies because people actually think it's true yeah. and when they see it. And make life decisions based on it. Yeah. And that's what you're talking about, that scale and that reach, too. Yeah, there's absolutely. no other way to do it. Well, it's, it's an unbelievably wonderful asset to do it.
you know very much that delicate dance between entertaining mm-hmm. and educating. It is a delicate dance. You're it right. It really is, right? Yeah. I'm sure there are examples maybe you pushed up against. Absolutely. I'm in my second decade, right? Right. right. They're, they're literally 334 episodes out mm. so far. And every one of them goes through a long process, not only the writing process and the development process, but then the production process filming process, the editing process. And sometimes there's a need to change things because of cost, because of what location's available, because of the timing and so forth. And producers don't generally know how taking out a scene or taking out a sentence or even a word sometimes can change the entire meaning. For example, there was one time where the actors thought that we were saying, psychopathy too much so they decided to say psychosis instead and just go back and forth between these two words because they had a lot of the same letters but they're very very different things and so that's just an example of why it's important that somebody should be around who understands because otherwise you get word soup and that happens in shows and i've seen shows unfortunately where they talk and they say words that sound really important But if you actually know what the words mean, they're being misleading. That's something that has happened. If I say hundreds of times, I'm way underplaying it. Mm. It's probably happened thousands of times over the last 17 years. Fortunately, everybody who was involved in Criminal Minds, and I've also worked Mm. on a whole bunch of other shows, but everybody on Criminal Minds at least was 100%, oh, if we need to do that to make it authentic, we will do that. But there are other shows that premise Mm. of it is so wrong. I tried very hard to make it more believable, more Mm. real. But some of the shows, they're not trying to produce fantasy, but they are. So in preparing for this interview, I rewatched three of the episodes that you either wrote or co-wrote and Mm. discovered in one that you actually acted in it. (laughs) With this lens of looking at it now, I was so aware of how much you educated during the absolutely entertaining and grossing episodes. Well, I was truly just like, they're really doing it. And it's popular. Yeah. Well, that's great. And here's the thing. If you look at, for example, let's say the movie Die Hard, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a great scene where, you know, these terrorists have taken over this building and then things are blowing up and the cops come and then... All of a sudden, these two FBI agents come up to this detective or this cop, and they say, hi, I'm Detective So-and-so, and Special Agent Johnson, this is Special Agent Johnson. They're two very different people, mm-hmm. but anyway, same name. And he says, all right, well, I'm Detective So-and-so, I'm in charge here. And the guy takes out a cigarette. <sighs> Not anymore. <laughs> well, that one line does so So much much damage damage, to FBI, local police cooperation. And so we had to undo stuff like that. And I think that's really important. And so in Criminal Minds, we definitely did that. And I Mm -hmm. I endeavored to do the same thing in a number of other shows that I helped on. In Criminal Minds, you show that the FBI is like a supplemental help to local law enforcement. literally was made so that we could do research, training, and case consultation, Hmm. all to help other 
agencies. Right. So we help with the FBI, of course, but we help other federal agencies, state yeah. agencies, and any local agency that needs it. One of the ways we do it is by doing research projects and then teaching and traveling and actually educating cops on the best ways to investigate, the best ways to get somebody to talk, the best ways to interview and interrogate, the legal ways to do that and things mm -hmm. like that. So about the private jet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the G5. So although I'm sure that the makers of those jets were very happy that we were flying it every mm -hmm. week and it was an ad for their product every week. We didn't do that in the FBI. We yeah. flew coach. All right. I guess we can let criminal minds lie on that. <laughs> well, yeah. They have to get there fast because we have to solve well, every right. crime in 43 minutes. That's how much time oh. you have between commercials. Got it. What about Garcia? She is amazing how plugged in she is to all the technology, every database yeah. and how she puts it all together. She's amazing. Oh, okay. But how well, realistic is Again, that? when I said that we have to solve every case within 43 mm. minutes. Garcia is a big reason why we can do that on the show, and that is that we were able to crunch time mm. with her. And on Criminal Minds, we're focused on the behavior. What's important right. is the behavior, the psychology, what's actually going on in the minds of the criminals and yep. in the minds of the people who solve the crimes. It's both sides of that coin in Criminal Minds, and right. that's what we focus on. Every show has to take liberties right. with something we crunch time in terms of what we have to do procedurally. The psychology, the terms we use, mm -hmm. all of that stuff, the behavior, yeah. that's all real. I accept that. Thank you. I appreciate <laughs> okay. that. Apparently, uh, a few people I, outside I, do too. Why do you think people are obsessed with true crime, with cop shows, with criminal minds? And, and I'm one of them. Why? I believe as a behavioral analyst, that it has to do with empathy. And mm. females are our number one category of viewers. Mm. And that's across all crime, true crime and, and dramatic crime. And I believe that's because females are nurturing in general. And not that guys aren't, because mm -hmm. it, I think there are, there are a lot of very empathetic guys in the world. But in general, guys like action... Women want to learn as much as they can about horrific events, things that can go wrong so they can protect the Be ones prepared. they love. Yeah. And I think that's a good thing. I think that is the most basic part of your brain, mm -hmm. trying to protect yourself and the ones you love. That's important. Yeah. And that's another reason why there's a real responsibility mm -hmm. in teaching people actually what they should do. For example, I don't think shows right. we're talking about grooming before, but now almost everybody knows what grooming is, how offenders use it to get a child into a situation. And they groom the parents or guardians of the children and the community as well. So it's really important that that is something that everybody's aware of so that right. they can help actually prevent it from happening. You know, I've actually explained my obsession with it and why I think more women are into it in okay. much the same way. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I've said because I we're wanted, the same we're the person, same person Jim. <laughs> but also because I'm like, I want to know what's out there, what's going on. Then I'll feel prepared. Right. right? Exactly. So you can prepare. And, right. Yeah. And in order to know, we want to understand. Mm. 
Like, why does this happen? Why do they act like that? Which is why Criminal Minds is so popular. Because that's exactly what we do. We get into the minds of the offenders and into the minds of the people who catch the offenders. Exactly. So you had to study these people. And for the purposes of this podcast, we can focus on sex offenders against children. Yeah. So tell me, what was it like profiling those types of people? Well, that came... Later in my career, obviously, in the beginning of my career, I was investigating these cases, child sex crimes and child abduction cases in New York City on a violent crimes task force with the, the FBI, NYPD, Joint Sexual Exploitation of Children Task Force. So I didn't do as much profiling as I did investigating, doing undercover work and learning how to talk to these offenders. Now, I was very fortunate to have a great partner, Detective Joe Gelfin, Mm. and he was a first-degree detective. Now, that's Mm. the highest degree of detective in NYPD. And I can remember vividly going to a guy's house and interviewing him and Joe sitting down and talking to him about all sorts of stuff and the guy offering us tea. And I'm sitting there and there is a pile of Polaroid pictures on the shelf with him, with these boys that we know he was sexually abusing. And it's called plain view, right? So you can use that. You're invited into a place. You can either ask him, hey, do you mind if I look at these pictures? Or you can get a search warrant because you've seen them there. Anyway, I just wanted to get to the bottom of this. Let's Mm -hmm. stop with all this garbage. And Joe's like, take it easy. In the end, Joe was so good at building rapport that the guy just willingly said, yeah, okay, here are the pictures. And he gave the whole thing up. And I'm like, wow, that's pretty impressive. And he's the one that taught me how to build rapport. And it's difficult when you're dealing with somebody who you know is a serial child sex offender, somebody who has sexually victimized multiple children over time. It makes you upset. It makes you really want to lock them up, but you have responsibilities as well. And the way you do it, you can maximize the chances of getting someone to cooperate, which then makes the entire justice system go more easily, Mm. is to build rapport and to actually make them understand that you understand them. And it's a big hurdle to get over at first, but once you do, you have this clinical detachment, and you're able to talk to these people and make them believe that you could be friends. And there is a certain part of you that has to just be open and vulnerable to just saying, look, this is a human being, this is a real person, and even though... Everybody else in the world wants to say monster predator. I don't want to say that because not only will that make it more difficult for me to then build rapport with this person, but also Mm. it'll make it much more difficult for people to recognize this person in public Mm -hmm. or in private settings. Because if you start by calling them a monster predator, well, you think if there's a monster predator around and you see it, you're going to know lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. But that's not what they look like. They can have the nicest personalities and the brightest smile and the most amazing work ethic. And they're the best teachers and the best coaches and the best people Mm -hmm. in the community. But they're actually sexually victimizing kids. It's such a dichotomy 
that you need to not look at sex offenders that way if you're actually going to unearth them. And so this is something that I've been fighting against for a long time because people want to talk about how horrible child sex offenses are, which, okay, I get that. But there's two bad things about that. One, you're not going to recognize the offender when you see them. Mm -hmm. And two, every survivor out there and every future victim out there is going to hear this. And if you say this murders a child, Mm -hmm. this kills a child's soul, this destroyed a child's life. Those are messages that survivors and future victims hear and they think it's over. And I don't want that to happen. That's why I speak about it so much too, because I just want people to know that it is not the end of your life. Absolutely. You're not broken. Mm -hmm. You can heal and live a fulfilling and rich and happy life. That's important. I didn't plan to ask you this. This is getting a little in the weeds, but Uh but being... As someone who has the legal mind and law enforcement, I'm curious what you think about this. Because we as a society seem to put sex offenders into the most heinous crime, mm-hmm. right? It seems that the punishment often, like the statutes, can be extremely long and punishing. And what I've found is that when you do that, it almost makes it harder to charge them. Mm because the burden of proof is that much higher. You you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I know. And it's another very difficult balancing act. Mm -hmm. There's no way that you can easily say this is the best number of years when you have parents whose kids are victimized and they could be very young and it could be horrible victimization and you want that person to go away forever. The important thing is Once somebody is identified, Mm -hmm. we want to protect children Mm -hmm. permanently. So is that by locking that person up permanently? Is it by labeling that person when they come out? Is it by treating that person and monitoring that person and letting everybody know Mm -hmm. that this is a danger, a risk in the community? I think it's the latter. I think we need all three of those things. And there are some laws that if somebody is a sex offender, they will lock them up indefinitely forever because the thinking is that if somebody is literally sexually attracted to children, then their sexual attraction cannot be changed. Now, when we talk about child sex offenders, Mm -hmm. we already can break them down into two categories. There's child pornography offenders and there's hands-on child molesters, Mm -hmm. we'll call them. So both of those categories are a continuum. Mm -hmm. It's not little boxes that you put offenders into. It's really important because when you try to put a human being into a particular pigeonhole, most of the time they're not going to fit. And we have to understand that there is gray area and there is movement across that continuum over time and under different circumstances. So if... A lot of people will call these offenders pedophiles, Mm -hmm. but a pedophile is a psychological diagnosis, and it's in the DSM, and it's a person who has recurrent and intense sexually arousing fantasies, urges, or behaviors involving prepubescent children. Mm -hmm. So it's only the offenders who are sexually attracted to prepubescent children Mm -hmm. that are actually pedophiles. Mm -hmm. The others we call preferential 
child sex offenders. Mm. Remember I said they could have sexually arousing fantasies, urges, or behavior. Mm -hmm. So you could be a pedophile and actually never touch a child. You could still be an offender by collecting child pornography. Mm. And in time, you may get bored with the fantasies, the fantasies reinforcing those arousal patterns, Mm. masturbating to reinforce them. Mm. Those actions can actually drive you closer and closer and closer to want to offend. The best indicator of what somebody wants to do is to look at their fantasy. Mm. And if their fantasy includes sexual activity with children, then that's what they want to do. So that's really important. Anyway, if you want to learn more details Mm -hmm. about this, there's a great monograph that Ken Lanning has written, and he's updated it 160,000 times. It's called (laughs) Child Molesters, a Behavioral Analysis. And you can get copies Mm. at NCMEC or www.missingkids.org. In general, child sex offenders can be broken down into two broad categories, situational Mm. and preferential. Now, situational offenders are those who basically don't have a sexual attraction to children, but they can be very impulsive. They can be basically stressed out or emotional, or they could lower inhibitions with alcohol or drugs, but they're opportunistic. They're not fixated on younger children. There's also a category, the older boyfriend or the older girlfriend. Maybe they're in the same high school because they got left back a couple times and they fall in love with somebody who's Mm -hmm. a freshman who's 14 and they're Mm -hmm. 19 now. They can be an actual offender, but their sexual attraction will age with them. Mm -hmm. So they're not going to be constantly fixated on 14-year-olds. It just happens in this circumstance. So those are all the types of situational child sex offenders. On the preferential side, there's three subcategories. These are people who have a definitive sexual attraction to children, but it can be exclusive or can be Mm non-exclusive. So you have the fixated type, which are sort of the pedophile plus. There are pedophiles, but there are also the offenders who are sexually attracted to pubescent Mm. and teen children. And then you have the sexually diverse. And this is a type of offender that we call trisexuals. They'll try sex with anything. And they have categories of different things that they're sexually attracted to. They can be sexually attracted to adults and children at the very same time. They can be sexually attracted to animals and different inanimate objects. It is a multiverse of Mm. different sexual attractions. Typically, they'll have pornography collections that exhibit that, you'll see a lot of fetish type Mm -hmm. sexual activity with these kinds of offenders. And then a category we call formally latent. These are offenders who they have maybe through their life up to a certain point fantasize about having sex with children, but never did anything. But maybe it's because of this constant cycle of reinforcing the arousal pattern by looking at child pornography and masturbating and fantasizing about it. And then they step over the line and actually offend because mm-hmm. online it's so much easier these days to get access to children and online took what was a community problem and expanded it around the world. Now people from anywhere could get access to your kids 
as long as your kids have a phone that's connected to the Internet. And so it's a real risk. But the four hallmarks of preferential offenders are that it's a long-term and persistent pattern of behavior. They start early. Generally, they recognize in late adolescence that they are sexually attracted to children and they will offend early and often. Mm -hmm. All right. They'll start offending shortly thereafter. They have very specific sexual interest and they're fixated. It becomes their life focus. And this is why many of these offenders can be pillars of the community who quote, work with children in any youth-serving organization, but they can be the best teacher and the best coach and the best person in the community. And it's because they never tire of being around children. You and I, as much as we might love kids, you can't be around them all the time. And their interests are different. They're talking different ways. They want to do different things. That usually causes adults to minimize the Mm -hmm. amount of time Mm -hmm. they're going to spend. If somebody wants to spend more time with your kids than you can handle, that's a big red flag. Why are they so easily molding and blending in in that young environment? And then they have well-developed techniques. I call it sex lies and videotape. They want to have sex with kids. They Mm -hmm. develop lies and manipulations to get access to kids. Mm -hmm. And they will not only document what Mm -hmm. they do, or they will have a collection of child pornography, or we call it sexual victimization images as well. Mm. And that is part and parcel of the third hallmark of preferential offenders. And the last one is fantasy and desire-driven behavior. And they will collect fantasy material, and it can be child erotica, Mm. which is things that are related to children that aren't pornographic, they aren't sexual in nature, to the general public, but they Mm -hmm. may have a sexual meaning to that person. It could be children's clothing, it could Mm -hmm. be toys, it could be dolls, it could Mm -hmm. be anything that relates to children in their minds. And they will act on this desire-driven behavior Mm -hmm. and they will record it many times because it's so hard for them to get access to kids. Many times recording it allows them to relive it over and over again. So those are the most important factors when you're looking at preferential offenders. Jim, will you say your line about genetics? And this has to do with any sort of crime, but analogizing it to a weapon. And what I say is genetics loads the gun, psychology and personality aim it, and experiences pull the trigger. And the way people actually participate in the formation of this perfect storm mm-hmm. of events that causes someone to actually offend, the way they participate is in the development of their own personality. Mm. So everybody has certain genetics, and that gives you potentialities. But it doesn't necessarily mean that all those genetic traits that you have are going to express themselves. But You're also given basics and personality, and that develops over time. And the way it develops and the way you participate in that development is the hundreds of thousands of little decisions that you make in the privacy of your own brain. Because even at your infancy, you see this blurry blob, and if you cry, it comes and helps Mm -hmm. you, and that turns out to be your mother when you figure it out. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, there's another little kid over there, and that one's crying. 
and your mother's going from you to that one, well, you make a decision. Okay, do I keep crying? Do I push that other one off the table? Do I try to get rid of it? Mm -hmm. Those are decisions that people Mm -hmm. make. And you start making decisions in the beginning of your life and you keep making them and you could be embracing the dark side or pushing away from the dark side and embracing the light, right? Mm. As you keep making those decisions, it becomes a snowball effect. And eventually, it's just so easy. Joe Sullivan, who's a forensic psychologist from Ireland, who is a great guy, really a great thinker in this area, he calls it the downward spiral. Mm. So he says, as you're going down the spiral, you're going to come to a a brick wall. Mm -hmm. And you got to make a choice. Are you going to climb this brick wall, get over it to do this bad thing, or are you going to just stop and not do it? If you climb over the brick wall, you knock over a few bricks at the top every time you do it. So every time you go over that Mm. wall, it's a downward spiral, and the wall's getting lower and lower, and it's easier and easier to get over it. There's a point where there's absolutely no thought about it. You absolutely will do it every time. And that's what child sex offenders do, and that's how they do what they do. They also engage in what we call the RPMs, rationalization, projection, and minimization. So they'll rationalize their behavior. They'll say, well, this child hugged on me. They wanted it, you know, that kind of thing. Well, the child needed nurturing, not sexual activity. Mm -hmm. And normal people Mm -hmm. distinguish that very clearly. Mm -hmm. They have rules and lines they don't cross. But offenders Mm -hmm. say it's obvious they want it right? It's just unbelievable how young they will go. Then there's projections. They'll say, really, it's not my fault. Mm -hmm. It's that child's mother for not supervising. Supervising That Mm -hmm. child for being sexual with me. For the community itself, Mm -hmm. it's their problem. They'll project the blame on others and they'll minimize what they're doing. Well, I'm not hurting the child. Mm -hmm. I'm loving the child. I love children. I would never hurt children. Have we heard that before? By offenders many mm-hmm. times in their mind, they're saying, I'm not hurting that child. Mm-hmm. I'm expressing love to that child. They are trying to convince themselves that what they're doing is not wrong. So that's really important to understand how they behave so right. that you can see and recognize that in offenders. So what is the relationship between sex offenders and psychopathy? Well, there's some, I would say that psychopathic sex offenders are an extreme of Mm. that continuum. Mm. They're on one side of the spectrum and that could also be mixed with sexual sadism and Mm -hmm. things like that Mm. because Mm. a lot of sexual sadists, they have no human empathy. They have no feeling for somebody. They want to cause and witness the suffering of others, right? Mm -hmm. And so they fit pretty cleanly into that category. Mm. But I would say the majority of child sex offenders do not Mm. fit into that category. There are a large number of child sex offenders who are one or two time offenders. They have one, maybe one victim in their entire life. They're situational offenders. Mm. They're in a situation where they're really stressed out or they're drunk or high and they Mm. act impulsively on something they wouldn't normally do. They want to have sex. A child is available, vulnerable and manipulable. Mm. And because of that, they take advantage of the child, but they're not fantasizing about child. I I interviewed one child sex offender in Great Britain, and 
some of the things that he was saying just gave me an indication. And I asked him, why was it that you sexually victimized your younger sister? Mm. And he said, well, she was there. And I said, what were you thinking about? Mm. And he goes, oh, well, I had made all these tapes of all these rape scenes from all the movies I could find on the internet. And I was fantasizing mm. about that, but I couldn't get access to women. I could get access to her. It turns out he was a serial rapist. In his brain, this is what he wanted to do, but she was available and vulnerable, and he could manipulate her into the right. situation. So it's really important to understand that there's a huge portion of sex offenses against children that are not psychopaths. Some of them are preferential. Some of them are situational. Mm. Again, I can't stress this enough. They're not all the same. Mm -hmm. And the preferential ones who are exclusively sexually attracted to children, you will never change them. Never, ever change them. It, it would be exactly the same as changing yeah. our sexual right. attractions. But if they are sexually diverse, you can teach them avoidance behaviors where you can medicate them so they have lower sexual drives. You can monitor them and you can teach them coping mechanisms mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. help encourage them to just go towards sexual liaisons with adults. And then the situational ones, yeah, you can teach them to mm -hmm. stay away from kids, but they all have to want to do it. It's not something you right. can just right. superimpose on them. Right. They have to actually do the work every day and there'll still be a risk, but you can minimize that risk by doing those things. See, you're so good. That was my question. And you just preempted it. <laughs> Sorry. So, so I was going to say, what happens when you're 17 and you're like, I am still attracted to 12-year-olds? Mm. Then what happens? Well, there's an organization called Stop It Now. Mm. And this is something that was very controversial. And a lot of my colleagues said, how could you possibly support that? They're saying that People can call in and say they're sexual offenders and not call the police. Well, I would rather avoid mm -hmm. having that person offend than I would have locking them up. Right. You know, and so I think it's really important if you're trying to get help, if mm -hmm. you're trying to prevent yourself from offending, one, stay away from child pornography. Mm -hmm. And there are certain frauds that say, oh, if you look at child pornography, that means you won't actually touch a child. That is just not true. Mm -hmm. I've been on the stand a bunch of times te testifying as an expert witness, and I've had so many defense attorneys ask me, well, does that mean that if somebody's looking at regular pornography that they're going to go out and rape women? And I, every time I say no. You know why? Because they can legally have sex with women, right. and they will mm -hmm. legally have sex with women if they can. And that's the same with child sex offenders. Mm -hmm. They will look at child mm -hmm. pornography and they will illegally have sex with children if they can. Right. And that's why they're a risk. And we should not be even making fake AI child pornography. So you're not using real children, but it still creates an arousal pattern right. in the brain of the person who's looking at it. And that, unfortunately, mm -hmm will eventually mm -hmm. make them want to act on their sexual attractions. Just even this idea of having services for people who may feel this way, mm -hmm. I think just makes us as a society really uncomfortable. Of course it does. But we well, have to talk we, about it. If we don't do that, <laughs> yeah. then they have no choice. Right. We have to give them a choice to at least try to not offend. Now, I'm not saying that it makes them bulletproof. Even if it prevents one victim, 
That's right. going in the right direction. There are a lot of offenders who would never even think about trying to change. Yeah. I've had offenders bragged about the fact that they had 400 victims and things like that. Right. But there are some who I think are trying desperately not to offend, and we need to have services for them. We need to be open mm -hmm. to the fact that there are people out there who discover this sexual mm -hmm. attraction and don't want to do it. I know that the Moore Center at Johns Hopkins does this work. Mm -hmm. Do you know what some of these interventions are? It's Depro-Provera and Depro-Lupra, okay. and it reduces your sex drive. Mm -hmm. doesn't stop it, but it reduces, and it, do it doesn't prevent you from being able to be sexually aroused. But there's also many, many ways to sexually victimize a child without sexual yeah. arousal, right, right? right? Of course. So, so it, 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 it's not a perfect thing, but that's what Dr. Fred Berlin does. He treats them, mm. he, he gives them therapy, mm -hmm. and he monitors. Mm. So I think it's that three-pronged approach that at least today is the best. I don't mind putting a ankle bracelet mm -hmm. on a sex offender and making sure that they're not going near any children yeah. or any schools or any youth-serving organizations, that might help with the monitoring. But we haven't gotten to the point where we're able to behaviorally change a sexual attraction of a person. Kids who've been sexually victimized are 90% of the time abused by someone they know, mm -hmm. right? Yes. Often it's in the family, certainly someone who is in that person's community and trusted. Right. And, and persons in the family can be situational offenders right. or preferential yes. offenders. And it's important. If they are situational offenders, then those people are more amenable to treatment mm -hmm. and interventions. Mm -hmm. But the preferential offenders, it's probably not just in the family. Right. Probably offending outside the family as well. We also know child sexual abuse occurs in secret. Mm -hmm. It requires the secrecy uh, yes. of the child. Which is accomplished through grooming. In the context of sexual victimization of children, grooming is a dynamic process utilizing a constellation of behaviors aimed at gaining the cooperation of a child to achieve sexual gratification for the offender and or others. The duration could be several minutes to several years, and it can be aimed at the child, parents, guardians, and the community. The good ones groom everyone. Yeah, well, the pillar of the community type offender will groom everyone. Also, the most common and most effective type of offenders are nice guy or gal, acquaintance offenders. Mm -hmm. These are people that have some known relationship to the child, whether it's from their community, their family, their school, their youth-serving organization, and they attempt to get a position of authority to get access and control over that child. Generally, the offenders who are offending against adolescent boys are the most prolific mm -hmm. by far. And it is not unusual for that type of offender to have two, three, four hundred victims over the course of his career. Mm -hmm. They typically groom through the three Ds, drinking, driving, and dirty pictures. They give them access to alcohol. They give them access to driving cars because that's what they're about to be able to do and they're not allowed to do it yet. And they're given pornography. And those are three of the most effective 
Grooming tools. Also, another effective grooming tool is attention, affection, and assets. So an adult who pays attention to a child who's starving for attention, who needs nurturing, who has none of that at home, who's being picked on at school, any of those things, attention from an adult is just an amazing attraction. When you talk about affection, they may need nurturing, but they don't need sexual Mm -hmm. activity. And then assets, anything the child needs, and it could be food. They just Mm -hmm. don't have, they're too poor, their parents are so neglectful, Mm -hmm. they're not getting what they need. Food, clothing, sneakers, anything. Mm -hmm. Anything that might be gift or something that is a necessity in their life, any person who provides those things is obviously putting themselves in a position where the child is going to want to please them. Right. So I'm switching gears a little bit because we were talking about what most victims look like. And I would hardly say Dylan Farrow was the representative victim, but I thought you and Real Crime Profile did such a great job analyzing that HBO documentary series. And you went into a lot of this stuff. It's so difficult when you have somebody who is such a pillar of the community, mm-hmm. who is lauded in so many circles and still to this day. And yet mm-hmm. the evidence mm-hmm. of him being sexually mm-hmm. attracted to children is just overwhelming. <laughs> I mean, overwhelming, especially when he decides that he's going to cheat on Mia Mm -hmm. with his stepdaughter. He was spending a lot of time with her when Mm -hmm. she was still a child. Mm -hmm. And very shortly after that, he announced his relationship with her. Right. And unfortunately, because of circumstances, and you'll have to watch the mm-hmm. documentary or listen to our coverage to find out all the details. But basically, the fact is that the prosecutor decided that Dylan was so fragile and so young that he did not want to put her through the trial. So they dropped the charges. And of course, mm-hmm. Woody Allen uses that to say, yeah. oh, I'm completely exonerated right. and innocent, which is not true at all. I mean, that was amazing spin. I remember being mm-hmm. impressed by that in uh-huh. a diabolical way. Yes. But I have to say, listening to those episodes, I look like a total psycho walking around Griffith Park, shaking my fist and going, yes, Jim, yes, I'm with you. You were dropping F-bombs left and right. It was amazing. I am from the Bronx. Yeah, it's in your blood. Yeah, I loved that passion because you were like, this is such bullshit that nothing happened. Right. Right. And you went through all the reasons why. Charges should have been filed and why he should have been prosecuted. Right. It didn't happen. And, you know, shades of Jeffrey Epstein, right? There were different reasons, I believe, that happened or didn't happen at the time in in the beginning. But I believe that there is a mountain to climb over in order to get somebody who is at that Mm. level of famous, popular and talented there's another person that comes to mind mm. named Michael Jackson. Mm. His behavior screams that he is actually in love with boys. He actually sexually victimized boys. But unfortunately, because of all of the ramifications of somebody coming forward and what happens to them, it took people a very long time to be able to stand up. And I've spoken mm. to a number of the guys that 
were victimized by him. And I wish that they could have found justice, but mm-hmm. under the circumstances, they couldn't. But even when they're not celebrities, it's such a huge hurdle. Absolutely. And why? Why? How do you reconcile that? Because as a society, we don't talk about it. It is such a non-talkable subject. It's something we sweep under the rug. If it happens in your family, you don't want anybody to know about it. There's so much shame and embarrassment and guilt tied to it. We need to get rid of that. And that's Mm -hmm. why we have to have more open discussions about it. One of the things I always say is, if you want to protect your child from a dangerous street that you live on, Mm -hmm. you don't protect them by not telling them there's a dangerous street in the front yard. You protect them by walking them to the edge of the street, watching, showing them cars going by really fast, Mm -hmm. walking them to the corner, telling them to wait for the light to change, holding their hand as you go back and forth until they're old enough to do it themselves. But that's how we protect kids. Because we're not with them 24-7, 365. Why can't we do that with sexual education and sexual Mm -hmm. victimization? Mm -hmm. If we did that, just that fact alone would take away from the offenders the opportunity Mm -hmm. to teach them about that. Because as much as we want to protect our kids by keeping them naive and innocent and all that, what we're doing Mm -hmm. is setting them up. For the offender who would be more than happy to teach your child about sex and sexual victimization. So we need to be smart. And it's not that kids should have all the responsibility of protecting Mm -hmm. themselves, but Mm -hmm. please give them the tools Mm -hmm. to at least help. There's a great book by Joelle Castaic called The Well-Armored Child. Parents should read it. They should talk to their kids about Mm -hmm. it. Have age-appropriate, loving, calm Mm -hmm supportive conversations, not anything to make them scared. And you've said before, kids are always getting nonverbal cues from yes. us that sex is dirty. We're awkward ourselves yeah. talking about it. We turn it. the channel. Yeah. We yeah. turn it off on the TV, whatever. Yeah. We don't let them go on that. On the internet, we tell them over and over again, this is not something we talk about. Mm-hmm. And so if something sexual happens to them, they don't have the language. They don't have the way to actually talk about it. Yep. So we can't prosecute our way out of this. Most offenders aren't even caught. Right. Right. But how do you, from your legal mind, why is the burden so high well, for evidence? Just look at the same thing with adults. I mean, the, look at I, I know. look at the fact that less than 1% of rape cases that are reported end up in a conviction. Right. 1%. I mean, but that's unacceptable. I know. But if adults are not able to get through the system and prosecute the people who are raping them, Mm -hmm. then how do you expect kids to be able to do that? So we have to change the system. Okay, so tell me, Jim, how do we change the system? Well, the first thing is to not disbelieve people out of the gate. You have to treat everybody the same, Mm -hmm. and just because the person they're talking about is in a position of authority, is a respected member of the community, is a father, Mm -hmm. is a mother, is a teacher, whatever, we can't say, well, no, that can't be. Mm -hmm. Just because we don't know what's going on in their minds doesn't mean that they're not actually sexually attracted to children or sexually victimizing children. Mm -hmm. So that's the first thing. The next thing is our laws Mm -hmm. and our judicial system is extremely bending over backwards to help ensure that defendants don't get falsely convicted. Unfortunately, what that does is it makes the burden so high. If we talked about this a lot more, 
more children would come forward. Right. Right. That would mean that we it, wouldn't be just having one child's voice against an right. adult. It would be more provable in a court of law. Mm, I see. I'm so glad for Marcy Hamilton and Catherine Robb doing the great work at Child USA and mm-hmm. Child US Advocacy. I know that statutes of limitation are another thing, yeah. right? Yes. It is just unacceptable that it's so hard for kids. That's why this conversation is so important. We have to, as individuals, as families, as mm-hmm. communities, mm-hmm. as a society as a whole, all of us have a responsibility to talk about this, mm. to stop making it a pariah mm-hmm. and just keeping it out of our lexicon. Because right. all that does is help set kids up and help this conspiracy of silence mm-hmm. that the offenders love. Right. They love it because it helps them reoffend. Okay. I think you've made it clear that the justice system is totally messed up. It errs on the side of preventing Wrongful conviction. Wrongful conviction, right, right, at the expense of getting kids justice. Correct. So we need to focus on prevention. Yes. And so we've talked about... We've this talked is how about, you do it. Yeah. You talk yep. about it. Entertainment is such a powerful medium mm-hmm. and sharing personal stories. I think that really helps mm. survivors to feel they're not alone because they're not alone. Far from it. We know there are millions. Yeah, millions. Millions. Yes. And then we can start a movement to focus on prevention. Thank you so much, Jim. You can understand why I had Jim Clementi be our very special final guest, right? He is a truly gifted crime fighter, writer, producer, and storyteller. A major omission from this episode is the biggest story of his life, which we will cover in the next and final episode of this season of The Lionhearted. Jim's own story of child sexual abuse, survival, and how he helped the FBI catch the man who abused him and countless other young boys. The Lionhearted Podcast is produced by Amanda Kelso and me, Andrea Harner. Special thanks goes to Kevin Tossi for editing, and of course to our guest, Jim Clementi. Follow us at The Lionhearted Podcast on all socials and subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss any future episodes. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with a few friends and please leave us a good review as that helps spread the word. Thank you so much for listening.